Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Treating the last verses of this book of the Bible, I might call your attention to the fact that originally First and Sam, First and Second Samuel weren't divided. That was a device uh, for uh, to be helpful for study and for and for reading. Uh, I am going to uh, to pause my messages on Samuel. I I do intend to come back to it uh, in the future just because of that continued story that we're just kind of getting into with David. But today we do come to something of a pausing point. The end of Saul's life and the devastating defeat that the children of Israel suffered at the hand of the Philistines. Listen as I read God's word for Samuel 31, beginning with verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. The Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is another heavy passage, isn't it? Last week we looked at the first six verses and saw the tragic end of Saul and his sons. But this passage goes on and the humiliation of the children of Israel continues. For not only was Saul killed, but it brought an end to the vain hopes that the children of Israel had placed on King Saul. This king that they had asked for. A king like the nations around them. On final analysis, their strategy in asking for this king can only be called idolatry. Because of that, it is my purpose today to preach about that, to explain the idolatry of the children of Israel, to warn you that idols bring you under their power and their penalty. And yet to also proclaim the grace and peace that comes from Christ, that can be seen in the bravery and the deliverance that the men of Jabesh Gilead 
demonstrate. But let's look at the depths of humiliation that come on the children of Israel first. It was bad enough that the king and his sons lost their lives. The Philistines' victory was complete, and it's described as a rout of the soldiers. They all, they all run away in fear. And as the people and the surrounding cities catch wind of what is going on, when they see that the army is defeated and they're running away in fear, the logical consequence of what's going to happen next is that they are in danger, and they know it. This is not a rivalry in football that may be a bitter rivalry like Bedlam is. This is war. People understood that their lives, their land, their herds, their valuables, their cities were forfeited to the victor, the Philistines. And so they fled as well. They abandoned their cities and the Philistines moved into them. They inhabited those cities, cities that they had not built, wells that they had not dug vineyards that they had not planted. To the victor go the spoils. But the humiliation continues. The Philistines went out the next day to, to strip the bodies, is what the text says. What that meant is that they went out to find anything that was valuable on those soldiers that had fallen. And they found valuables, and more than that, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, King Saul. And they stripped off his armor. And they sent word throughout all of the land of the Philistines to proclaim the victory that they had had, that it might be celebrated among the people and proclaimed in the temple of their gods. This was a big deal. They had defeated not only the, uh, their enemy army, but they had also killed the king of the enemy and his sons. Now, there's one remaining, but imagine how, how this news would have gone viral through the land of Philistia. Sure, the nation of Israel had other soldiers and other resources and strongholds, but at this point, the Philistine victory uh, is, is really devastating to the nation of Israel, especially because of the fall of Saul and his sons. And the, humi the humiliation continues. Not only did they cut off the head from the body of Saul, but they take his body and the body of his sons and they nail them to the walls of the city of Bethshan. This is more than a celebration of victory. This is a, this is a 
disgraceful demonstration of their power over their enemy. They publicly abuse the bodies of the royals. A disgrace and utter humiliation, not only to Saul, but to Israel. And this this abuse of a dead body is something that grates on our nerves, doesn't it? It's something that we have seen in other contexts. And it uh, naturally grates on our nerves more recently because we've just witnessed the death of, of a monarch in England. And just think of, uh, of all of the care and the and the honor that was given to Queen Elizabeth's life and her service, and it's captured especially in the respectful way that they treated her body. As it was laid in the grave, can you imagine the outrage that would have happened, that would have erupted if someone dared to offer any disgrace to Elizabeth, let alone to her body. Think of the abuse that's given to the royals of Israel. And the humiliation continues. They proclaim their victory in the temple of their idols. They put Saul's armor in the temple of their gods. What's this about? Why would they do this? It's because the Philistines looked on this battle not as a conflict between regional superpowers. They looked at it as a contest between the gods of Philistia and the god of Israel. Much like the way earlier they had defeated the children of Israel and captured the Ark of the Covenant, remember what they did there? They took the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into the temple of their god Dagon and set it at his feet. It was a symbol of victory. This was a trophy of war, and they do the same with Saul's armor. Saul's armor is a trophy, a, a way of proclaiming, our God is better than your God. Look at what we've done to your God. And the Philistines seem to understand this so well as a contest between gods. And the sad thing is that Israel understood this too. It's just that they had essentially turned away from the one true living God to follow after an idol of their own, to follow after a false God. And it's that false God that is utterly humiliated in this battle, which leads us to consider Israel's idolatry. Now, Israel's false god was not so blatant as the gods of the Philistines. They carved some wood. They 
chiseled away at stone statues and then hoisted them into place so that they could worship them. And we look at that and say, well, that's just stupid. It's ridiculous to, uh, to chop down a tree and to carve it up, give it eyes and ears and mouth and hands and legs and feet and to prop it up and, and bow down before it and say, you made me. That's just silly, isn't it? That's what idolatry is. These statues have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have arms but they cannot save. It's laughable. It's so outrageous, isn't it? But the children of Israel had come to embrace an idol all the same, a different kind of idol, an idol that is more subtle, but an idol nonetheless. They didn't carve any statues. They didn't set up any physical uh, idols to bow down to. Nevertheless, it was idolatry because they turned away from the one true God in favor of their own source of salvation. They turned and asked for a king like the nations around them. You remember that phrase? This takes you all the way back to chapter 8 in 1 Samuel. There we read, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's important for you to understand this because that request is, is in a sense, coming to its logical consequences in this passage now. I remind you that the Lord had chosen Israel to be his people. He was the covenant head of the nation of Israel. He was their king, and he exercised that rule through the judges and through the priests. But as Samuel was getting old, his sons were wicked. The people didn't want wicked rulers, and rightfully so. They also faced the trouble of enemies that were encroaching around them. They often raided them, the Ammonites and the Philistines. So they reasoned that they needed someone to lead them in battle, someone to judge them. Their strategy was that they needed a, a king like the nations around them. Their answer to their dilemma was a human answer. Instead of crying out to God to ask for deliverance, instead we see them doing like we have seen throughout all of this passage in King Saul. They took matters into their own hands. And they set their hearts on a king, a human institution, a human strategy, rather than looking to God as their savior. Remember that a king was not fundamentally wrong. God had promised to give them a king, a promise that anticipates the coming of Jesus. 
But what the people wanted was a king like the nations around them, not a godly king, not God as king, not Christ, not David, a foreshadowing, but a, a, a king like the nations around them. And, and their sin runs deeper. In their words, they say, we want a king to rule over so that we may be like the nations around us. It wasn't just that they wanted a, 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 a fighter, a soldier that would be a righteous representative of the Lord to help defend them from enemies. No, they wanted to be like the nations around them. And this is what idolatry does. As I, uh, uh, as I was saying earlier in the service, isn't it ironic that this is what, uh, what idolatry is like, that the Lord in saving us is renewing us after his image. Well, idolatry does the same thing. It makes us after its image so that we want to be like the nations around, that the sins that become our most important value, our lives begin shaped around that idol. And you can begin to see how these subtle idols have very powerful influence in your life. We take a warning from Saul about his own sins, but we also take a warning about idolatry from the, from the children of Israel. And I would warn you today that idols bring you under their power and their penalty. Take note of the power of Israel's longing to be like the nations around them. And so, too, the idols of, uh, of today, those, those subtle idols of the love of money, the power of pride, the pleasures of this life and of the flesh, if you give yourself to those, they will have power over your life because they seek to make you after their own image so that you would be like them. Like the way that one commentator puts it, this is those who give themselves to sin in support to their idols find that they become unable to cease their sins. Their hearts having been captured and ruled by the idols they foolishly serve. Be warned about the power of these subtle idols of today. You can become ensnared in sexual sin. You can become ensnared by the love of money, the desire to have approval from the world, and so on. And if you give yourself to those temptations, it will become your master. And not only will that idol become a master to you, Without repentance, idolatry leads to death, both physically and spiritually. See, even though God corrected Saul, and even though he bore patiently with the children of Israel, when they failed to repent, the Lord did indeed exercise judgment, 
judgment foretold against them. We saw that, saw that with Saul last week. The Lord also foretold this all the way back in chapter 8 about what would happen if they set aside the following after the one true God to be like the nations around them. I said then, and I'll say it again, that God allowed them this choice that they made so that they would see the consequences of their sin. They made their bed, and they had to lie in it. Defeat and death of Saul and that of the nation warned that the path of worldliness is a path that is wide and seems to be easy and pleasant, and it's filled with many enticements along the way that says, come this direction, Enter into this path. But that wide path is a path that leads to destruction. This would be another very heavy message, especially if the book closed with verse 10. But it doesn't. Grace does shine once more out of the darkness of this tragedy. The Lord had raised up a king, a king that would rule in righteousness. We have been seeing the beginnings of that in David. And 2 Samuel will tell that tale of David's ascension and rule. We already begin to see uh, the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ that is the ultimate answer to this warning about idolatry. There is one true God who sets us free from those idols, who sets us free and transforms us after his image, breaking the power of idols in your life, setting you free from the bondage that you were in. But grace also shines in this passage and the brave act of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. I hope you remember Jabesh-Gilead. This takes you back as well into the early chapters of 1 Samuel. God did allow the children of Israel to choose a king, and in honor of that anointed rule, God gave certain successes to Saul, and one of them was that he delivered the city of Jabesh-Gilead. The Ammonites had surrounded them and given them an ultimatum. You have a choice. We will kill you, you and your women and your children, everything. Or you can serve us at the cost of cutting out your eye and you swearing allegiance to our gods. The choice is yours. You have till morning. The Lord stirred up Saul as that new king. And Saul went and rescued the inhabitants and soldiers of Jabesh-Gilead. They didn't forget 
They remembered how God had delivered them and the instrument that he used in King Saul. And it says that the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead rose that night and traveled through the night 10 miles behind enemy lines, we might say, to the city of Bethshan. There in the cover of night, they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons. And they took them away and back into the land of Jabesh Gilead. There they treated the bodies of the royals with a, uh, with a respect and with a decent and honorable burial. I want you to note the mercy of God that was worked through Saul to save Jabesh Gilead without comment on the spiritual condition of Saul. Note God's mercy at work through Saul. Then note God's mercy at work through the men of Jabesh Gilead to work for Saul, who was, after all, the Lord's anointed, the one who had brought deliverance to them. And in that light, in in the darkness of this devastating defeat, note the light of God's grace that shines. This is a moment where the Lord's judgment lies heavy upon his chosen people. He was chastising them. He was judging them for their idolatry, for their turning away from him. And yet, in the midst of that judgment, there is deliverance that, is, that shines through. And I would say the same to you, that the Lord your God is the only God. He will have no room for idols in your life. There are times in which he chastises you. There are times when he brings you to be aware of how you have given yourself to follow after false gods. It may be that you have become ensnared in a habitual sin. It may be that you can see that and you know that your heart has grown cold towards the things of God and you long for freedom, for deliverance. And in the light of the judgment and chastisement of God, Hear this, that as surely as the Lord will judge, he will surely save those who repent. He will surely break the chains of those idols that have come to have mastery in your life. For he and he alone is your master. And he is a loving master who longs uh, uh, for your freedom and sanctification, and he will indeed deliver you from that. So this is a message that prompts you 
to flee the wrath to come if you are on that broad path and on that broad path alone that leads to destruction. Make no mistake about the idol that you serve and turn away from its power and its penalty. Recognize as well that as surely as the Lord judges, he surely saves. And as you repent, he surely forgives. May you find that today in the gospel, in the work of Jesus Christ. May you rejoice and pray fervently for freedom, for renewal, for the putting off of all those things that are old, the putting on of Christ, being made and renewed after the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here again, that an idol has power and penalty. There's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our God, our desires often turn our heads away from that straight and narrow path. Father, it can be confounding to say, why, oh God, have I done that? What looks so enticing? And yet there it is. Lord, we pray that you would set us free from the chains that bind us, set us free from the idols of this world, help us to be watchful against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us to persevere in faith. And I pray, O oh God, especially today, that we would be reminded that, that as we cry out to you, even though we have turned away, that you are quick to hear and to heal, that you are loving to forgive us of all of our sins. I pray that where there is bondage, you would break that. That as we follow after you, that we would do so with renewed obedience and renewed joy in our salvation. For you are our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 115 says that those who make these idols become like them. And it is our prayer of confession that the Lord would forgive us of the idolatry of our hearts, and that he would bless us with his glory and forgiveness. Let's stand and sing Psalm 115a.